Well, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll continue in our study of this amazing sentence in Ephesians 1, which is the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. It extends from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. We're going to be isolating our attention again this morning on verses 4 to 6, but I think it might be helpful for us just to capture the flavor of the sentence. I'm going to read the whole thing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. One of the wonders of our generation is the onslaught, advent, and production of the smartphone. Smartphone is a mobile device that combines cellular telephone technologies with mobile computing functions into one unit. I remember buying my first smartphone. It was an iPhone 1 not knowing at the time that it was an iPhone 1. It was just an iPhone. It was the first one. I quickly learned that the I in iPhone didn't stand for me. It stood for Internet. I literally had the computing power of a computer and access to the Internet in my hand. Now, when I held that for the first time, I remember having so many questions. How does it work? I mean, I I went all around. There's no wires anywhere. It's not connected. It's not tethered to anything. Um, I was also very uh, amazed when just a few months after I got my first smartphone, I was in South Africa and received a phone call there. And how that signal found me where I was is still a mystery to this day. Countless questions about the workings of a smartphone As curious as I was, though, about how it worked, I remember that first day holding that little phone, and as crazy as it 
sounded that I had the internet in my hand and a phone in my hand with no, with no uh, cables. I still remember, you know, the, our, the, the phone that you would turn it, what was that, the dial? Um, what was it called? Rotary. Rotary dial, you'd do it, and then the big question is, do you let go and let it swing back, or do you take a ride on the back foot? And then the, the day that my, my parents got a wireless phone, um, well, actually, before that, I remember we got a push-button phone. That was really over the top. The advance of technology was always fascinating. When all those advances took place, especially when I held the internet literally in my hand, I don't remember my questions ever preventing me from appreciating and being thankful for my new phone. I never got tripped up thinking, well, I don't know how this works, so I'm not going to use it. I don't know how this works, so I'm not going to enjoy it. I think in a small measure and in a really distant way, it's an apt illustration of the text before us this morning. When it comes to election, sovereign grace, predestination, Paul is pointing us to the wonder of and enjoyment of this amazing doctrine. Yet if we trip up on trying to ask too many questions of this doctrine, letting our curiosity get the best of us, we can easily miss the wonder of it. There's nothing wrong with asking the questions about this doctrine. In fact, just a little map of what we're going to do. We're going to finish this text today, Lord willing, in verses 4 to 6. And next week, we're going to pull the car over and just ask some hard questions about predestination and election and God's choice, God's foreknowledge. How does that all work together? We're going to be stitching some things together from several passages and ask some hard questions for which the Bible gives us some answers and also for which some of those questions, the Bible says, just put your hand over your mouth and stop talking. That's next week. But this week, if we look at this doctrine as we began last week and begin asking so many questions of it that we're not overwhelmed with joy by it, we're missing Paul's whole point. In Romans 9, and we'll come back to that next week, in Romans 9, Paul asks and answers the questions that you guys and I have. Is this fair? Is this right? Is God just? Those are all wonderfully appropriate questions that we will ask with Paul next week. Paul doesn't ask those questions here. He says, do you understand what you have? And can you and will you enjoy the wonder of it? Paul is pointing believers to the praise of God's great glory and grace for the blessing of being chosen and being predestined. He's talking to a group of people in Ephesus who were converted, who believed the gospel, who had been saved by grace through faith. And because of that, he says, your faith is evidence that God chose you to believe. And instead of trying to undo that theological Rubik's Cube in 10 seconds... Before you start asking those questions, Paul demands and invites us in this passage to step back and just be amazed. He does not consider the questions that inevitably come up when we consider the topic of God's sovereignty. And those are worthy questions and we will look at them head on next week. How can this be is an interesting question. 
wow is the proper response. So, in these verses, we're given a peek kind of into the kitchen to see what God does in putting together a banquet feast of salvation. There is a uh, restaurant that my wife and I enjoy going to, and they walk you through the kitchen on the way to your seat. And you get to see, like, all the workings of them preparing food back there. This is what this is. He is showing us inside God's kitchen as he makes the banquet feast of salvation. This is what it took for you to believe. This is what God did for you to believe. The challenge of accepting and believing this doctrine of sovereign grace or divine election or predestination is not contingent on our ability to fully understand it. Full confession, I don't. I accept it, but I don't fully understand it. I do remember, and you'll hear a little bit more about this next week in my own personal testimony, I remember my faith almost being derailed because I could not reconcile questions about this doctrine. We're not called to pick it apart and understand it all. We're called to accept it and rejoice about it today. And as I said last week, I'm convinced that most people's difficulty with God's sovereignty is not because they don't understand it. It's because they don't like it. And they don't like it because they don't understand what God is like and what he's doing in this amazing pronouncement of his sovereignty. Please be cautioned against forming and holding opinions and ideas before the Bible teaches us what it teaches about these things. Again, no one likes the doctrine of predestination if you think about it from the, pro- pro- from the improper perspective. Paul doesn't do that with us this morning. He says, you need to think about it from the standpoint of someone who is gloriously chosen and predestined in a way that you didn't deserve and don't ever, ever get beyond being amazed by. Just a little uh, review. Paul is teaching about God's sovereignty and salvation here in Ephesians 1. And he's doing so at the beginning of this, this letter to give us relief and confidence and hope and security and joy and amazement and worship and thankfulness because those are spiritual blessings that come out of what God has done. Paul starts out by saying God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in verse 3 in the heavenly places. Exhibit A, the first blessing he points to is the fact of God's choosing and predestinating. And I am very aware again of how troubling a doctrine this can be, but it's troubling only if we don't understand God properly and we don't understand ourselves rightly. The paradox of coming to grips with God's sovereignty and human responsibility is a serious one and the Bible teaches very clearly that God is sovereign over every dimension of our lives but it also teaches that we are required to make our own decisions for which we are entirely responsible. You say, how does that work out? I can't fully answer that except to say we're going to give a better answer next week than we're going to even attempt this morning because Paul doesn't. God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Human responsibility does not threaten God's sovereignty. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Paul said, by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing. Salvation from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future, to where we live right now, is by his doing. 
Now, as I said earlier, I read you the, the uh, passage, verses 3 to 14. That is one long run-on sentence in the Greek text. It is an amazing sentence in the Greek text. Uh, I was uh, shown a, a little graph by one of our uh, sixth graders just recently that they actually diagrammed this passage. And uh, my first uh, response to that is, can, can I have a copy? It was really, really well done. You should try to diagram it sometime. Now, Paul uses several terms. We talked about this last week as we go through this, this uh, opening sentence um, that point to God's forethought, God's wisdom, God's plans, God's purpose, God's directing. All looking at his great sovereign rule over people and creation. Here, he's specifically not talking about his sovereign rule over the, the world that he has created. He's talking about his sovereign rule over people. And he uses words like chosen and predestined and plan and his will. Now, please remember, this doctrine must be carefully nuanced. If you approach this doctrine without nuance, you will fall into one of two ditches on, on each side of the road. Either you'll start mistrusting God and what he's like and, and you'll be uh, frustrated with, with God or you'll misunderstand man and his capabilities and you will exalt man. So let's dive in, a little review on what we did last week. We're looking at a Christian's two viewpoints for enjoying the blessing of election. And the reason that we're looking at that is we're, we're enjoying the blessing of election because it's the first exhibit A of the spiritual blessings that he's granted us in the heavenly places. And this is what we talked about last week. First of all, God's purposeful choice. That's in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And we broke that down by asking four questions. First of all, who chose? Just as he chose. He is God the Father. And we noted last week as well that almost every subject for every verb in this long sentence is God the Father. God chose the believer for his glory and it had to be done in connection with the redemption accomplished in Christ because that's why he sent his son before the foundation of the world that plan was established. Who was chosen? Just as he chose us, us, in him. The us is, is specifically identified in the whole, or, or generally identified in the rest of the letter, but specifically in verse 9. Us who believe. You see that little phrase? That's the us. Us who believe. When were they chosen? Before the foundation of the world. Now why is that important? Because there, before there was ever one molecule or atom created, God made choices. It's a time reference for showing us that no one could have ever contributed to their salvation because this was established before the world even was. We'll come back to that specifically next week, by the way. Why were they chosen, that last phrase, that we would be holy and blameless before him? This is a sanctifying purpose that we would be holy and blameless, that we would act different, live differently, we would be morally uh, uh, above reproach, that we'd be looking for ways to be like Christ, like God in our actions, in our decisions, that it has moral, implication, moral implications. This is our commitment to Jesus' lordship in our life. Well, that was last week. 
Now he gets even more specific in our next passage, which is verses 5 and 6. Let's look together now at number 2, God's loving predestination. God's loving predestination. First of all, his purposeful choice. Secondly, his loving predestination. Those just come right out of the two verbs. He chose us and he predestined us. Now, this as well will be easily, more easily understood if we break it down with a series of questions. So let's look. Did I just go too far? First of all, is what does predestination mean? What does predestination mean? And the reason I want to ask this question is there are few terms in the, in the Bible that have been more misunderstood and ill-defined as the term predestination. Look at the end, the last two words in verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. These go together. In love, he predestined us. In love, he predestined us. He, the Father, We've seen in verse 3, he blesses us. In verse 4, he chose us. In verse 5, he predestined us. And again, I said it a minute ago, almost the subject rather of almost every verb in this long sentence is God the Father. That's the he. Now, the first thing we need to look, look at is in love. We'll come to the definition of the word in just a moment. In love, he predestined us. The prepositional phrase in love at the end of verse 4 grammatically goes with he predestined us, not the end of uh, the middle part of verse 4. It is theologically and devotionally striking. Now this is so important for this week and next to get your mind wrapped around this doctrine. The doctrine of divine election, divine sovereignty, sovereign grace cannot be separated from God's character. The doctrine of sovereign grace, let me say it again, cannot be separated from God's character. God is good and God is loving. And one of the primary objections about the doctrine of sovereign grace is some people, when they wrongly interpret this doctrine, conclude that God is unfair, unloving, and unkind. Capricious. God's sovereign grace, however, takes the shape of election and predestination being born out of his love. In love, he predestined us. Again, there are so many questions we have about this passage and about this doctrine, but if you miss the fact that if you believe, you believe and you were predestined because he loved you before the foundation of the world, you're missing the spiritual blessing that Paul intends you to enjoy. The doctrine of sovereign grace then, election, predestination, will always be distorted without an accompanying doctrine of God's goodness and man's sinfulness. I would propose to you this. Every problem we have, every bit of theological heartburn we exhibit about God's sovereignty 
is because of one of two errors we're making. We don't understand God and his holiness and his sovereignty or we underestimate and don't understand man's sinfulness and rebellion against God. If you understand both of those, this doctrine becomes sweet. If you're skewed on either one of those, this doctrine becomes very threatening. What does he predestined us? What does that mean? Well, the word literally means to mark out beforehand. To mark out beforehand. So many have attempted to redefine this word. I mentioned it last week. Let me say it again. I grew up in a church that was very anti-predestination in the way that Paul explains it. And I remember the phrase more times than I can count. That what this means is not that he predestined us, predestinate, What it means is God being sovereign and omniscient and omnipresent and outside of time looked down the corridors of time and he looked way down to your life, to my life, to a believer's life and he saw who would choose him in salvation, who would believe and those became his choice. Clever, but untrue definitionally and logically. You know what that does? That absolutely undermines God's omnipotence. Who is sovereign and powerful in that scheme? Man. And again, we'll come back to that more specifically next week. The dictionary sense of this verb, proorizo, uh, is to make a previous determination about something or someone, and it's used by Paul Uh, to parallel the word choose in verse 4. He chose us, he predestined us. Now the word's interesting. You can't break words down always and say, because you break down the word, you understand it like like, uh, grape nuts, which are neither grape nor nuts, or butterfly. If you were to break down butterfly and say this is what it means, you would wonder, you know, is this a cooking uh, 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 augmentation we're, we're doing here? No, no. But this verb word actually helps us if we, if we break it down. The verbal form, uh, horizo, uh, to mark out, to determine, uh, comes from the noun horas, which describes a marker used to put parameters around a person's property. So you're predetermining what the property lines are in, in, the, in the, the place you own. That's the word. When it's used about people, the meaning is closer to appoint, to choose, to predetermine, as here in verse 5. Since those chosen are predetermined, pre-appointed, to the position of adopted sons. We'll get there in a moment. So the way Paul modifies this predestination helps us know what he has in mind. God made a choice before the foundation of the world to predestine some to believe in him. Now before you start asking the the question, but what about those who weren't chosen? We'll come to that next week. Can you just at least enjoy the swim and the cool water of being chosen and being predestined if you believe. He uses six, six prepositional phrases to explain the meaning and implications of predestined. Just kind of look down the page there. He predestined us in love. That's God's motive. 
He predestined us for adoption. That's God's goal. He predestined us through Jesus Christ. That's the mediation of the Son of God for us. He predestined us to himself. That's the inner relation of adoption, that we now have a relationship with the Father. He predestined us according to the kind intention of his will. That's the standard of the governing act, his kindness, his sovereign purpose, his goodness. And he predestined us for the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the result. All of those prepositional phrases relate to his predestining us. By the way, this is not the only time and the only place that the New Testament talks about this. Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand your, perp- your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. What that's talking about is God pre-appointed not only the death of Jesus under Herod and Pilate, but also predestined the suffering that men and women would do because of the name of Christ. It's not an accident. And that should give us hope and confidence, not surprise. Romans 8, 28, well, uh, 29, rather, and this is something we will anchor on next week. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. There's purpose. He predestined us to be a a son and a daughter. He also predestined us, this goes back to God choosing us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul uses the word predestination also twice in this long sentence. Look down at verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, very important, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We'll reserve our comments for that when we get there in just a few weeks. But notice this. There's a connection between predestination in verse 11 and predestination in verse 5. What is that Connection. Well, in predestination in verse 5, we're predestined to be sons and daughters adopted by God. Now, just use the illustration because God doesn't die, but family, fathers, and mothers die. And in this culture, when the father died, the son, the daughter became the owner of their property. They inherited so the idea of inheritance and the idea of being a son or a daughter is, is connected. That's why he says in verse 11, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, for what? First of the verse, an inheritance. We inherit the blessings of God because we're his sons and his daughters. We are heirs of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the thrust of this passage is to inform us that God's choosing and predestining is rooted in his character, his kind intention, his love. One of the main objections to the doctrine of election or predestination, sovereign grace, is that it paints God into a bad color and corner. He's seen to be capricious, uncaring, universally uncaring. Oh, he may care about some, but not all. 
This is not a new objection, by the way. You weren't the first people to wonder if this is fair. When Paul raised this issue with the Romans, he knew they would ask the same question as to whether or not God was just and fair in choosing some and not choosing all, or choosing some and not choosing others. So he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Is this fair, he says? His answer is, may it never be. For he says to Moses, back to Exodus chapter 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So, to those who might protest, this isn't fair, Paul responds by asking in Romans 9, 20, who are you to answer back to God? The foundation, as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the foundation is If you want what's fair, no one should go to heaven. No one should enjoy the the blessings of redemption. We are all doomed to hell. For God to choose anyone is such a demonstration of his grace. More on this next week. There's a, uh, a, a paragraph, a small little set of sentences that I've shared with you before on this subject and uh, you know I think all of us find things that we read that really become anchors and pillars of our lives and our theology this was one for me it's in a little booklet a little essay by Horatius Bonner called God's will and man's will and I think he nails the issue of our objection and our lack of appreciating God's love and God's kind intention in this This is what he says. I do not like the thought of God having all the disposal of my destiny. If he gets his will, I'm afraid that I shall not get mine. It comes out, moreover, that the God about whose love I was fond of speaking is a God whom I cannot trust myself implicitly for eternity. Yes, this is the real truth. And then this sentence. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Let me read that again. Think about this. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from man's suspicion of God's heart. Is that the truth for you? I think it's the truth for me, I begin thinking of God as capricious and uncaring and not universally loving. And when I think he is other than he is, I begin to doubt his wisdom. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious of God's heart. Again, remember that Paul is writing these words to encourage us to relieve us, to give us peace. He is not attempting to create a theological conundrum or debate in your mind. He's saying, in love, he predestined us. Can you appreciate and love him for that? It's okay to ask the questions. We're gonna do that next week, but not until after we enjoy the blessing of that gift. Walter Layfield writes, the words he predestined us do not imply that God has picked some in order to condemn others. 
Rather, they show that God did not act in a purposeless way, but has a destiny in mind for us. He purposed us, we saw last week, before the foundation of the world, to live a holy and blameless life. He purposed us in love to be something special to him. What is that? Well, we find that out in the purpose, the privilege, rather. What is the privilege of predestination? What is the privilege of predestination? This is overwhelming. In love, he predestined us, listen, to adoption as sons, and you can supply as daughters, as children, through Jesus Christ to himself. This is a loaded phrase. Not only is predestination the reflex of God's love, but it's also relationally motivated. God came to the orphanage called the world and adopted children. And out of that spiritual orphanage, if you believe, he chose you to be a son or a daughter. Through God's choosing, believers are adopted as children of the king. We become a part of his family Adoption, as you know, is the legal declaration that a believer is a child of God with all the rights associated with that, with all the privileges that come with that, with all the duties of holiness that belong to a child. And notice very carefully, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This comes back to the means. He adopted us through Jesus Christ. His son... As the writer to the Hebrews says, becomes our brother because we're both sons and daughters of God. Unbelievable, unbelievable privilege that God is our Father. We so easily pray, Father, and we should. But do we pray it with the relational understanding of the privilege that that is? But he didn't adopt us to sons and daughters through Jesus just to be that way. Look at the last phrase. To himself. To himself. We typically look at adoption from the perspective that we get to be sons of God. He adopted us to himself. In God's mind, the accent is on us being his children. Adoption means the most to those who have felt the burden and sting of being spiritually orphaned. You understand that? Adoption means the most to those who have been spiritually orphaned. My mom was a twin. Um, her name was Martha. Her sister's name was Mary. And they were adopted. And uh, which becomes really interesting when, you're, when your doctor starts asking you about your medical history. Well, what about your mom? Well, I can tell you about mom. What about her mom? Or, I, don't, I don't know. We never knew them. She was in four different homes before she was finally adopted by my grandmother and grandfather. I didn't know until later in life how meaningful that was because I grew up with loving mom and a loving dad. But for the first few years of her life, she didn't. She bounced around several places and several homes. And when she would talk of adoption, the twinkle in her eye 
And the swollen joy in her heart was so precious. We have many people who adopt and have been adopted in our church. And that feature of their life is such a sweet illustration of God. He didn't have to do this, but he did. At great expense and at great cost through the death of his son. And again, adoption means the most to those who have felt the burden and sting of being orphaned. And we may not have been physical orphans, but if we are spiritually aware, we understand that we were orphans before God. John 14, verse 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Why is that important? Keep listening. That the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. I, Jesus said, will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's not just an illustration. He understands that spiritually we are all orphans. And he adopts us. I don't know why. I don't know how. But I'm amazed every time I consider it. It is interesting also that this discussion about adoption follows the purpose of God's choosing at the end of verse 4 that includes our holiness. You say, why is that important? Well, when Paul spoke of adoption to the Romans, in Romans 8, he said this. Just bear with me as I read this. Romans 8, 12 and following. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Talking about being holy and not unholy. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. See the connection with holiness and being above reproach in verse 4? For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, we talk to God as our Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And then he concludes that, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The point is simple. If we are sons and daughters of our holy God, we should resemble his holiness. He is holy. We should be holy. My sons bear my resemblance in some ways, personality in some ways, inclinations in some ways. They're my sons. If we bear the image of God as believers, we should bear his holiness as well. The transfer from our will being captive to the devil to our will being captive to our loving father is epic. It's a preview of what Paul will detail in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Just look down for a moment, though, in chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Excuse me, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Stop right there. 
God chose, God predestined. Because of his grace, as we'll see in a moment. How do we know that we're chosen? How can we know if we're predestined? He says so right there, through faith. It's because you believe. The challenge of the scripture to us is not to see if we're elect, not to see if we're predestined, not to tell if we're chosen. The call is to believe. And if you believe, you are predestined and chosen. It's exactly what Paul says. By grace, all of God's doing, you have been saved. How did he do that? Through your believing, through your faith. I've had so many conversations with people who get discouraged and they say, look, I just don't think I'm elect. I don't think I'm chosen. And I always ask them back, well, do you believe? Well, I think so. Do you want to believe? Well, yes. Then that's indicative of, of being chosen. Letter C, what is the motivation behind predestination? I think we lost our PowerPoint, did we, Scott? Okay, not sure what happened. Letter C, what is the motivation behind predestination? That's the third. What is the motivation behind predestination? This is, I want to stop and do a whole sermon on this, but we don't have the time. He did all this according, kata, according to the kind pleasure or intention of his will. God's predestination is not only rooted in his love, it's also rooted in his eternal purposes that have kind intentions. Remember we said earlier that you cannot separate this doctrine from God's heart, God's motive, God's character. His intentions are kind I love Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you not know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? This word, the kind intention, you can also translate pleasure. Listen, it brings God pleasure to adopt those who believe as his children. Remember, he did this to himself according to his kind intention of his will, his, his predetermined plan. Most people know the feeling of giving a gift that's not appreciated. If you're a parent, you know the thrill of giving a gift to a child who really appreciated it. I don't know how it worked in your house, but in mine growing up and even now, typically Christmas is, you know, three months of hinting and telling what you'd like for Christmas and then one morning of opening what you hope to have gotten. And when that happens and the thing desired and the thing wanted meets the person's hand, there's no, there, there's no way you can hide or disguise the joy, Right? I have it, finally. This is what I wanted. This is so sweet, so precious. But I don't know if you're like me. I, I have given people gifts before they open it, and there's, you can tell on their face, oh, thanks for this thing, whatever it is, and whatever you got it. Or I already have one of these. It's just not appreciated. Can, can we just reverse that for a minute? Understanding that the kind intention of God's will gave us 
salvation through pre-creation choosing should make us happy and joyful and blessed. It should never be the case with salvation that God gives us that gift and we look like, well, I didn't really need this. End of verse six. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Full disclosure, I was tempted to do about a three-week series on that verse and my wisdom got the better part of me. God's motivation, God's goal in initiating the plan of salvation before he created the world was it would be a reason for his creatures to give him praise for the glory of giving us what we don't deserve, his grace. Now Paul's gonna cycle back to this, this same concept, his glory, uh, uh, Two more times in this long sentence in verses 11 and 12 and in verse 14, though the word grace is left out of those mentions, the praise of his glory, not of his grace. But I think it's assumed. God's grace is God's disposition of kindness toward undeserved sinners. That's what grace is. His disposition of kindness toward undeserved or undeserving sinners. I got a book in the mail this week. And my wife was just a couple of chapters ahead of me. And uh, in reading this book, she gave it to me uh, a couple days ago. And she said, he's talking about what you're preaching on. It's about an 800-page book on providence by John Piper. I've uh, started diving into it. Well, in that new book, fresh off the press, Piper says this about this verse. Quote, This takes your breath away. Before the foundation of the world, before there were any human beings who had sinned, before any human needed to be redeemed, God planned that the goal of creation and providence would be to the praise of the glory of his grace and that this grace will come to people through the forgiveness of trespasses, that's the next verse in Ephesians 1, through the blood of the redeemed, of the the beloved, the beloved Son of God. In other words, not only was grace for undeserving people planned as the capstone of God's glory, that God planned for grace to be expressed through the blood of being shed by his beloved Son for the trespasses that he never committed, end quote. Does it take your breath away? Do you ever pause to say, I can't believe what he did to rescue me from what I've done? I can't believe he is who he is to rescue me from what I am and who I am. The central question we face in this text is, He did all this to the praise of the glory of his grace. There's a simple principle. You naturally praise what you prize. You naturally praise what you prize. You have joy about what brings you joy. You express joy about what makes you joyful. 
Consequently, a lack of praise indicates a lack of prizing. If we're not overflowing with praise for the great glory, the the majesty that God gave grace to us, what we didn't deserve, his kind disposition in Christ, then the problem is in prizing that. Look at how the concept climaxes here. In the beloved. In the beloved. He bestowed his grace freely on us in the beloved. Now that beloved there, you don't see it in the English, but it's the same functional Greek word as this sentence, this phrase started about. In love he predestined us. Then it makes it into a noun. He bestowed on it in us in the beloved. God's love was given to us in the one he loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He demonstrates his love by giving us the one who he loved most. An unmistakable connection that he loved us by giving us his beloved son. Do you marvel and revel in God's kindness, his grace, his gift in Jesus? Can we just steal a little bit? Can we just look ahead for a moment? Because he keeps going. He freely, graciously, Bestowed salvation on us in the beloved. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. This passage is so saturated with Trinitarian theology. The great love of the Father is most expressed in his love towards the Son, the Beloved. And that love toward the Son was expressed in love toward us. And the love he gave toward us would be sealed by his Spirit. Are you freshly amazed at the grace of our salvation that you're no longer a spiritual orphan if you believe and if you are troubled by this doctrine don't ask am I predestined ask will I believe